0: Welcome to Abide in Liberty, a podcast empowering patriots everywhere to re-enthrone faith, family, and freedom as the bedrock pillars of liberty in education, our communities, and our nation. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Abide in Liberty, where we're going to continue our discussion of the principles of freedom that are enshrined in the Constitution. Um, I'm pulling this information from a book called The 5,000-Year Leap, written by Cleon Skousen, and he did just a fantastic job of consolidating and communicating a lot of these fundamental worldviews, assumptions, and principles that the Founding Fathers were working from and putting them together in a way that makes sense and is supported by their own words. So I am unashamedly putting in a plug for this. There's no I have no affiliate relationship with the publishers of this book. It's just one that has really helped me a lot, and I want to share some of these with you in a way that's a little bit more quick and succinct than you going out and buying it yourself, although if any of these topics are of interest to you, I would highly recommend buying it for a more in-depth treatment of each of these principles. Before jumping in to today's topics, I want to reiterate something that I talked about in a prior episode, and that's the importance of principles uh, principles are true forever and always they're true regardless of what hemisphere of the planet you happen to be residing in they're true regardless of whether we live in a advanced modern society or the stone ages these things are true always and forever and it's so important that we not convince ourselves that we have evolved beyond these principles. A lot of the dangers that we face in our country today are the direct result of us thinking and having the pride and assuming that we can somehow outthink these principles. We can evolve our way out of these principles of truth, and it's just not its just not possible. So we need to get back to these. It's really important that we understand them, and let's jump right back in. So the first principle on the docket for today is the principle of unalienable rights. And this one is very closely related to natural law. As you'll find as we go throughout these principles, a lot of these principles are very similar to each other. They connect with each other or one will build on another. And when you're dealing with truth, and the whole truth, and you can look at truth in its entirety, that's Not surprising. Truth is not compartmentalized. I've made this case before. You don't carve out a little piece of truth and stick it over here on the secular shelf, and then carve out another little piece of truth and stick it over here on the religious shelf. You don't carve out a little principle of truth and say, okay, this is a constitutional principle, and then find another principle of truth and say, yeah, but this one over here only applies to family relations. These are principles that, yes, are important in government and in particular in the founding of our nation, but these principles apply to a vast array of things and they are completely interconnected and interdependent. So don't be surprised if you see that and if it seems like there's a little bit of repetition or large amounts of similarity between these different principles. So back to unalienable rights. The phrase unalienable rights is classic natural law language. And the idea is that these rights, these unalienable rights come from God directly. Now, a right that is unalienable means it cannot be separated from you. It is a part of who you are. It exists for you because you exist. And there is absolutely nothing that anybody can do to remove that right from you. From the Declaration of Independence— We read, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where do these rights come from? They come from our creator. They come from God. Now, throughout today's episode, as well as in subsequent weeks, we're going to talk a lot about two really unique individuals. These are people that the founding fathers read widely. They almost all of them read and understood and really appreciated these thinkers. The first one is a guy named Sir William Blackstone. He wrote um, in the 18th century a treatise, a legal treatise called The Commentaries on the Law of England. This was an Englishman. And what he did was he took the common law of England and he distilled it down and published it into uh, a work that explains the legal principles of English common law. And he did it in a way, his intent was to do it in a way that the common people, the lay person, could understand it. Another person that the Founding Fathers read from widely was a guy named John Locke. This is another Englishman, an English philosopher, who in the 1600s wrote several essays on, on politics and on political theory. Now, what's unique about both of these people is that they are very much God-fearing Christian men. There's a push in society and among scholars today to try and paint the Founding Fathers as these secular enlightenment thinkers, that's, that's who, you know, they were turning to these secular authors for their ideas and building the government. But when you read through the founders' quotes, the people that they reference, the Bible is the number one reference in their writings and in their, their conversation and in the notes of the Constitutional Convention itself. And then close on the heels of that are these two gentlemen, Sir William Blackstone and John Locke. So these guys were really, really influential in shaping the founders' thinking. So Blackstone on unalienable rights said, those rights then which God and nature have established and are therefore called natural rights, such as our life and liberty, need not the aid of human laws to be more effectually invested in every man than they are. Neither do they receive any additional strength when declared by the the municipal laws to be inviolable. On the contrary, no human legislature has power to abridge or destroy them unless the owner shall himself commit some act that amounts to a forfeiture. So this is just driving home the point that these unalienable rights aren't stronger if some government says that you have them and they don't disappear if some government says that you don't have them. They're there no matter what. They're not weakened or strengthened by anything that human government can do. Unless, and here's the caveat at the end, we can behave in a way that justifies those rights being removed from us. So in the case of murder, for example, I have the right to my liberty, but if I am a danger the liberty and life of somebody else, and I've proved that because I killed somebody, then I forfeit some of my liberties. I've not proven that I can handle them appropriately, and so I can be imprisoned and deprived of freedom because I'm using my liberty in a way that infringes on that of another. So there are some exceptions there. There are consequences for our actions, and we can lose privileges. Now, what's really important about this idea of unalienable rights and natural law is that they are founded by something bigger than ourselves, whether that's, you call that natural law, whether that's God, whether that's Allah or some other higher power, it's, it exists above and outside of the human experience, outside of me, outside of our, our societies, it's bigger than us without that something bigger than us that defines and sets up these unalienable rights and these natural laws they don't exist if if humanity is the peak of evolution and is the arbiter of all things right and wrong if there is not something above that or beyond that 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 sets up natural law and sets up right and wrong then anything is permissible or could be permissible. So long as we get enough people to agree to make it a law, we could make murder right. Now, it doesn't make sense to anybody, but even an atheist would say, no, no, no. Murder's wrong. Well, what makes it wrong? I don't know. It just is. Well, what is that something that says that it is? And you can't argue that. You can't explain that without acknowledging that there is something beyond me. Beyond you, beyond us, that says that it is. And that is that thing that says that is God. So all of this is founded in the idea that there is a higher power who sets up some rules that we have to follow. And we know innately inside of ourselves what those right things are and what those wrong things are. And this is exactly why virtually all totalitarians, all dictators, and all tyrants in human history have had to destroy God or control God in religion, at least, if not destroy it completely. Because God is a threat to them because God says that there are rights and laws that are greater than the dictator, that are greater than the tyrant. This is why in communist regimes, the first thing to go is religion. God has to go away. Because if God's not there, there are no higher laws, there are no unalienable rights, and your rights are limited to what the government thinks they should be. And that's why atheism is one of the first tenets of a lot of these uh, totalitarian regimes. Because you can't oppress a people who know that they have rights that come beyond the dictator, that come beyond uh, human government's Another important thing to point out is that there is no such thing as a comprehensive list of unalienable rights. During the ratification conventions of the Constitution, when all the states had taken the work of the founders during the Constitutional Convention and were reading the Constitution, were debating whether their state should adopt it or not, one of the major concerns that many voiced were that there was no list of rights In the Constitution, there was no Bill of Rights, and their concern was if we don't have this list of rights, then the government can trample on them. Now, those who opposed including a Bill of Rights weren't opposing it on the grounds that there are no rights and these people shouldn't have these rights, but they were really nervous that if we tried to establish a list of what some of these unalienable rights are— that governments or people would come to believe that that list was comprehensive. And so other rights that are out there would be trampled on because, hey, look, it's not on this list. Must not be a right. I get to take that from you. Now, they ended up, their compromise was, tell you what, we'll give you your Bill of Rights. Everyone really, really wants this, but they included in the Ninth Amendment this statement. It says, The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So in other words, if we didn't list a right here, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist, and the government can't just go trample on that. There were, though, during all the founding era, three main unalienable rights that were spoken of over and over again. And Jefferson, in the Declaration of Independence, talked about some of these, he said, when he was talking about those unalienable rights that we were endowed with, that there are certain unalienable rights that among these. So here's a, a couple of them. These aren't all of them, but among those unalienable rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are the big three, and and a lot a lot has been spoken about what is meant by the pursuit of happiness, um, and. This was clearly understood by the people at the time. Many, many writers listed these three rights in a little bit of a different way. They would say something like life, liberty, and control and ownership of property or life, liberty, and property. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this idea of property. You might hear that and say like, okay, property really? So owning stuff, that leads to happiness. I thought I'd been taught that Uh, Money is, or love of money is, the root of all evil. That I can't buy my way into happiness by having stuff, and that's not what's being talked about here. When life, liberty, and property is being talked about, it's not avarice, it's not greed, it's not um, consumerism that we're talking about. Now, this is a separate principle, and it deserves its own um, chunk of time. So, we're going to leave that on the table right now. But just look at what happens when something like communism abolishes property rights. There is something about the control and ownership of property that leads to happiness and prosperity. In communism, you take property away and the result invariably is not happiness and prosperity, but misery and poverty. There's a reason for that. We'll get into that a little bit more later in a later principle. All right, let's move on to the next principle. This is that divine law was given to protect these rights, these unalienable rights, and to enhance Human happiness. So the founders took the idea of natural law and coupled that with divine law and said, okay, we know what natural law is. We know who the author of this natural law is. That's God. And where do we find divine law revealed to people? That's done in the scriptures. William Blackstone again said, the doctrines thus delivered we call the revealed or divine law, and they are to be found only in the holy scriptures these precepts when revealed are found upon comparison to be really a part of the original law of nature as they tend in all their consequences to man's felicity. So the revealed law in the scriptures is the same as natural law. How do we know that? Because when we obey God's commandments, people are happier. That's what felicity is. It's happiness. They're more happy. They are more contented. Blackstone also said, man considered as a creature must necessarily be subject to the laws of his creator. This will of his maker is called the law of nature. This law of nature is, of course, superior in obligation to any other. It is binding over all the globe, in all countries, and at all times. No human laws are of any validity if contrary to to this. So this is going back to the idea that there are things that are true that are right no matter what, no matter where and no matter when you live. And any law that contradicts those, any human laws that contradicts them like hey, it's okay to go out and murder your neighbor if they have a car you like. That if a law were created that said that, that doesn't somehow nullify the natural law that says thou shalt not kill, the divinely revealed law that says don't kill and don't even get angry with your brother. So human laws can't supersede this. It, divine law, natural law is supreme and it reigns over everything. Human laws can't change it. Now there's a quote that I have mixed feelings about. It sometimes I really like it and I've got a t-shirt actually that has this quote on it. And other times I'm not so sure. This is written by Thomas Jefferson. It says, when injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. So you can see why that could be problematic. If you perceive something as being unjust, it's my duty to resist it. Well, people have thought that there are laws that are unjust that really aren't and vice versa. So that one can be problematic. But what I like about this quote is he's he's hearkening back to this principle of divine law, this idea that just because you take something unjust, like it's okay to kill your neighbor, if that becomes law, that doesn't make it actually real. It doesn't mean that that's something that you should follow, that you are honor bound to follow. In that case, you should resist. That's your duty to resist that unjust law. So this is, that's kind of what Thomas Jefferson's getting at, how you apply that in political situations where things are happening that maybe you don't agree with, that are a little bit more gray than the thou shalt not kill commandment. That's kind of where it becomes a little tricky, but that's what he's getting to. That's, he's using language of divine and natural law okay next principle and this it's going to sound really really simple and it's going to sound really really basic but this next principle is foundational to almost everything else that we're going to talk about here for the for the coming weeks and the other principles that we're going to be learning about this is the idea that sovereignty rests in the whole of the people now we've grown up with this if we've if you live in america yeah, sovereignty, people rule, makes sense, not a big deal. This is normal. We all know this. Well, this is not something that humanity has known or has been able to articulate or defend or put into practice for most of its history. During the time of the American Revolution, the reigning theory was the divine right of kings. And there were some of these thinkers like Blackstone and John Locke who were starting to push back on this idea. But the divine right of king says that the king is in charge. He is the sovereign. He has ultimate authority and power to rule his people because of who he is, because of the family that he was born into. So because he's a part of that ruling royal family, God wants him to be the king. God wants him to be the ruler. He is in charge and has all the power because that's where God put him. And his children, in turn, are divinely appointed to be rulers by virtue of the fact that they're born into this royal line. That's where sovereignty comes from. It comes from your lineage. And so the people don't have any sovereign authority. They're not ultimately in charge. It's this person who got appointed to be the king and the ruler and all of his successors and his family. That was the reigning theory. And if you look back in history at all the kings and all the rulers and go back into Egypt with the pharaoh where they thought not only was the Pharaoh divinely appointed, but he was a God incarnate. Um, this idea has been around for a long, long time, and it's kind of been the, the predominant reigning theory of where authority and power comes from. The founders rejected this and turned it completely on its head. Here's a few quotes from uh, some of our founders about this. Alexander Hamilton said, the fabric of American empire ought to rest on the solid basis of the consent of the people. The streams of national power ought to flow immediately from that pure original fountain of all legitimate authority. So in other words, all legitimate authority comes from the people, from the consent of the masses. James Madison, they must be told that the ultimate authority resides in the people alone. And then on January 23rd, 1776, this is a proclamation that was issued by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. This was about six months before America declared its independence. This proclamation said, it is a maxim that in every government, there must exist somewhere a supreme, sovereign, absolute, uncontrollable power. I want to pause there. According to the divine right of kings, that is the king. But this proclamation goes on to say, but this power resides always in the body of the people and it never was or can be delegated to one man or a few. So not only does this power reside in the people, but you can't change that. This is one of those natural laws that you can't change. You can't delegate it to somebody else. You can't give that power away. People can't come together and say, hey, this is who we want to have this power. We're going to give it all away to you. No, it's still, you're stuck with it. You can't get rid of it. And you might be wondering, well, but we do. We delegate our authority to our representatives and we have representatives in Congress. Um, the president of the United States is a representative of the people. And so he goes and they, the legislature and and the president, they enact laws and they run the country and we've delegated that to them. And yes, we've delegated some of the, we've delegated some of the responsibilities to representatives to do that on our behalf. But ultimately we still have The final authority. And that's why we can come back every two years in the case of the House of Representatives or every six years in the case of the Senate or every four years in the case of the president, we can fire those who don't do the job that we sent them to do. We wouldn't be able to do that if we had delegated our sovereign authority, if we had somehow given that away. So the fact that they have to come back to us every two, four or six years for reinstatement through the election process is an indication of the fact that where does their authority come from? Us. And they don't get to keep using that. They don't get to keep operating on our behalf unless we give them permission to do that for another term, another two, however many years. And again, this distinction between the divine right of kings and the people cannot become overstated because it leads to another principle that justified breaking away from Great Britain. Now, that's what we're going to pick up with next week. So be sure to join us and don't miss out on that one. Thank you for listening to Abide in Liberty. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with friends and family. In the meantime, keep up with the show online at AbideinLiberty.com. Also, if you'd like to help our K-12 bless and educate more families, contact us by visiting libertyyouthacademy.org. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and be strong.